Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons December Journal Club podcast. I am Lekas Dagobadi, and I will be your moderator today. I'm currently a chief resident at Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you today an interesting article from our journal, Operative Neurosurgery, melding together neuro-oncology and skull-based neurosurgery. It is titled, The Superoral Eyebrow Craniotomy for Intra- and Extra-Axial Brain Tumors, a Single-Center Series and Technique Modification. We have with us the senior author, Dr. Daniel Kelly. Uh, he is director at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and professor of neurosurgery at John Wayne Cancer Center. Dr. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. And as guest faculty, we have Dr. Michael Carzi, who is the Neurosurgical Skull-Based Fellow at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Carzi, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Now, we'll start with a summary of the article by Dr. Kelly, followed by a discussion between the three of us regarding the nuances of the article. If you would like to purchase the CME version of the podcast, please visit the educational catalog at cns.org. Now, without further ado, Dr. Kelly, please tell us about your philosophy about the uh, superorbital eyebrow craniotomy and the inspiration behind this, uh, behind this article. Sure. Thanks for having me, and thanks for profiling our article. So the superorbital approach has been around for a, for a long time, and we, we certainly haven't been the, the first to, um, to write about it. And, um, but we've, we've increasingly applied it as one of our keyhole approaches um, as, a, as a minimally invasive approach to the uh, anterior cranial fossa, the paracellar area, even the sylvian fissure, and, and uh, sort of going on to, into the edge of the middle fossa and the posterior fossa. And with time and with, with greater experience, and now really over using this approach for over 20 years, and with the advent of endoscopy, we found that it's, it's really an excellent uh, operation on many levels. First of all, it, it's, uh, it's excellent for the patients in that it, it does provide a truly minimally invasive approach. The patients tend to heal well from it. It's minimal exposure of the you know, cerebral surface. Um, and it gets you down on the floor of the frontal fossa. I think that's one of the biggest advantages is the, um, it's really a gravity-assisted method in a way and that it gets you on the floor of the frontal fossa just by virtue of the incision being, you know, even with the floor of the, of the frontal fossa. And uh, so it eliminates the need for brain retraction. Um, and and it's, both ver it's versatile for both uh, intraaxial and extraaxial tumors, as we showed here, with the most common tumors being, being meningiomas, uh, gliomas, and, and metastases. So I, I think that um, we, we wanted to kind of profile and look at our own results over time to see how we'd done it, how, how we had done in terms of uh, resection rates and complications. But one of the other things that we did, and we, we highlighted in this, um, in this article, was a modification of the technique and really relates to sort of the pericranial incision at a means of to, to try to minimize postoperative uh, paresis of the, the frontalis muscle. And I think we've, we've been able to show that, that that seems to work pretty well and it does not um, uh, restrict our exposure. Um, so I, I think it's a I think it's a really versatile approach. It's complementary to the endonasal approach and the mini approach. 
um, and we we use it for a lot of cases um, now in in the in this region. So I think that's a that's kind of the initial summary. Thank you. Um, now you have discussed uh, a lot of nuances to decrease uh, the risk of post-operative complications and improve the cosmesis associated with this procedure. Can you summarize a few of the discussion points, such as the incision you referred to, and uh, mm -hmm. maybe the um, slight nuances in your closure that Im improves cosmesis? Right. So uh, obviously, when you're doing an incision on the on the forehead or in the eyebrow, um, you know the, the goals of the surgery, tumor resection, are obviously critical. But you do want to have a, a nice cosmetic result. And I think um, there's a few things. So first of all, the incision is, is really buried in the thickness of the eyebrow. And obviously, as you can see in the article, if you look at the, the last uh, figure, uh, well, it's not the last figure. I guess it's figure, uh, figure four, which shows the photographs. You can see the, the healing. And I think that that's really what you want to shoot for. You, you want to be able to have a patient where you almost have a little trouble seeing which, which eyebrow was the, the site of the approach. And obviously, if you have patients with bushy eyebrows, that, that can help somewhat. But even people with relatively thin eyebrows, if you do meticulous closure, you can, you can have a, ni a very nice closure and a very nice uh, cosmetic result. Um, a few things. Um, one of the things that we highlighted in the article was this: where, where the pericranial incision goes. And so the the we we used to do sort of an arcing incision, um, and then would bring the bring the pericranium down. Um, and we found that if you do that, the branches of of the uh, of the nerve are more likely to get cut as they come up. Um, onto the onto the frontalis muscle. So the lower you place that pericranial incision, almost even with the eyebrow incision itself, the less likely you are going to injure those fibers and have a frontalis paresis. So that's an imp important point, and we showed that in the, the small group of patients that we did that in, and subsequently we've done it in a lot of patients, the, the paresis rate uh, has really dropped, and the time to recover is quicker. That said, an important thing, we tell all of our patients before surgery that you're probably going to have weakness of the forehead. It's going to look like you got a Botox injection on that side for a while, but in almost all the cases, it will get better. They will also have a numb forehead in many instances because the medial edge of the exposure is the supraorbital nerve. And so we take that pericranial incision in sort of a hockey stick fashion where you're you identify the nerve, you come straight up from it lateral to the nerve, and then the pericranial incision extends out laterally over the superior temporal line. And then all of that is elevated with multiple fish hooks, and that's shown in the, in the um, anatomical uh, drawing, in the, in the photographs in figure two of how that's done and how the nerve is preserved. So those are the things that help minimize numbness and minimize postoperative uh, weakness. In terms of the um, the other cosmetic issues, we don't use cautery on the temporalis muscle and fascia. And keep in mind, the temporalis muscle and fascia, you're only going to open for about a centimeter and a centimeter and a half to get over the superior temporal line because you're going to put your burr hole just below the superior temporal line, just like you would for a terional craniotomy. And what I always tell our fellows and other people is this approach is like the sweet spot of a terional craniotomy. So that's where your burr hole is going to be. Now, when you do the closure, as you can see in the figures in figure two, 
the bone flap, and it may be a little bit hard to see there, but the bone flap is pushed superiorly so that you have no gap on the forehead. And then that gap that's just below the, the um, it's literally under the eyebrow and adjacent to the burr hole covering that straight plate, then that gets filled in with bone cement. And that way you have a flush um, closure at the top. You have no bone gap at the top and you you fill in the the lower gap with bone cement and that not only um gives a nice sort of cosmetic contour but it also prevents a postoperative hygroma which you sometimes get if you don't get a watertight um, dural closure so those are kind of the critical aspects of the opening and the closure that will allow you to have a good cosmetic result. The other thing I would say is that we use, you can see on the, on the images, we use these fish hooks to pull the, the um, superior aspect of the incision open. You have to be careful and remind yourself during a case, particularly a long case, that you rotate the fish hooks. You don't leave them on the same area of skin the entire case, otherwise you can get notching of the skin and that will, of course, degrade your cosmetic outcome. So these little things are really critical, moving the fish hooks around, um, making sure the incision stays, stays moist, you know, just taking good care of the tissues um, and minimal use of cautery um, is, I think is really helpful and important. No, thank you. It is very, uh, as you said, very important when we're operating on the forehead that uh, uh, all these nuances are, are, though they seem minor, are very important to the overall results for the patient. Um, now, it, this, this approach is uh, very nuanced and gives us a very low down uh, view onto the anterior cranial fossa, as you had noted. And uh, during your craniotomy, um, classically mentioned two centimeters. What uh, characteristics of the, of the pathology or um, of the tumor itself do you pay attention to um, when you're deciding endonasal, superorbital, or even mm -hmm. a combined approach? Right. Well, that's a, that's a really good question. So I would say we do a combined approach very infrequently. We had one a few weeks ago um, with a giant pituitary adenoma, you know, six centimeters bilobe going way down into the cell, into the sphenoid sinus, and way up into the ventricular system. There's absolutely no way you could do that in a single approach, I think, safely. And we did a simultaneous above and below, and that, that, worked, that worked very well. Um, but for most tumors, there's going to be one approach better than the other, and we did provide some examples <clears throat> in, the, um, in the, the last figure of the paper, figure six, of when you, you might use um, an endonasal um, or a superorbital. And, and just, just to go on the endonasal, you know, I mean, obviously, virtually all pituitary adenomas are, are going to be an, an endonasal approach. Craniopharyngiomas, the majority of cranios we operate through the nose because the majority of them are retrochiasmal. And so if you look at that case example that we have in, in figure 6C, um, you know, the, the ideal approach, the long axis of the tumor is from the nostril. And so I think most of us that do a lot of cranios, we do the majority, probably 80% um, through the nose. And then ones that are, you know, maybe multi-cystic, multi-lobular, spill out into the middle fossa or to the anterior cranial fossa, that's going to be better from, from above. And particularly some of the recurrent cranios where you need to just drain cysts 
for example, that are going to end up needing to get radiation. And you can see in our in our series, you know, almost 40% of our patients were reoperations. And so with the cranios, it's rare for us to do a cranio first time as a virgin case um, through an eyebrow, but um, we do use it for quite a few from for redos. Um, Tuberculum cell meningioma is a, a really interesting controversial um, topic. I mean, the, the, the key factors for that are the depth of the cell, and you can see in that example D in that same figure. So with a deep cella, um, and particularly with medial optic canal invasion, you're going to, you, I believe that those cases should be done through the nose because you can, you can do 180-degree optic canal decompression bilaterally and you can't do that from a terional, a bicoronal, any other approach, uh, even the eyebrow. You can do it a little bit if you remove the anterior clinoid, but um, in general, I think because the um, because of the ability to, de to decompress the medial optic canals bilaterally, that we're we are we are actually now doing a majority of our tuberculum cellos through the nose. The ones that we would do from above are the larger tumors, ones that spill out laterally over three, three and a half centimeters. I think there you, you get into a, a challenging situation by doing it through the nose. Um, and so that's, th those are probably the most important uh, things for the, for the um, uh, tuberculum cell meningiomas. Um, you know, things that are more lateral, um, like a, um, something that spills into the middle fossa, um, you, you would want to consider, we would often use a mini-terional, but certainly a number of clinoidal meningiomas we've removed um, through the, we removed through the eyebrow approach. And then things, um, other, other lesions that get higher up on the convexity, you're just not going to be able to get there through the eyebrow. We show two examples in, in figure 6A of one that's just at the upper limit, a convexity meningioma, which we got through the eyebrow, but one higher up, um, and a different lesion. Um, it's just not possible. So in that case, um, we did an, an eyebrow, uh, or, or sorry, a skin fold incision. Um, this was in an older gentleman who wasn't too, he didn't care too much about cosmesis, and you know, it, it, it worked out very well. So I, I think that, you know, you got to have all these options, and, and um, they're all really great approaches for the for the appropriate um, tumor. So. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. That, that's a, you offer a lot of pearls of wisdom, um, both now and, and in that paper. I, I think it's it's, uh, it's wonderful to hear from. To, to pick up on on your point of the uh, tuberculum cell meningiomas, there's been some some people discussing the use of the supraorbital keyhole for optic nerve decompression. What is your view about mm -hmm. pathologies that really invade the optic canal, and how well do you think you can actually perform decompression from that approach, or would you select a different route? Yeah, I think. It's definitely harder, um, and we we have done it, um, but not. And we just actually submitted a paper that's in review on this. And and um, one of the one of the key issues we bring up is this this issue of the ability to do an optic canal decompression. It, it is not easy to do it from the superorbital approach. You can, but it's um, the the trajectory. So if you think about the approach, and if you go back up and look at the the figure. Um, which one? It's figure three. If you look at figure three, when you <clears throat> come in 
the ipsilateral optic nerve and optic canal is really parallel with your approach. You're kind of looking right down the barrel of that, of the ipsilateral optic nerve, and you're looking at right angles almost to the contralateral. And so um, you, you, can do, you can do an optic canal decompression. You can, do, um, you can open the falsiform ligament. Um, you can actually do it bilaterally. And in some cases, depending upon the anatomy, you may even have a better ability to do the contralateral optic canal. Um, the other thing that's very helpful is the, is the angled endoscope. And so you can get a really a good view of tumor that's going under the ipsilateral optic nerve with the endoscope. And if you don't use the endoscope, you may not see nerve or you're not, you may not be able to get to it safely. And so um, I think um, all things being equal, if you have a tuberculum meningioma with medial optic canal invasion, you should do it through the nose. I think you're going to have, and, and the data would suggest, if you look at a, across a lot of different studies, and even in traditional transcranial studies, you know, with frontotemporal or, bi, you know, bifrontal craniotomies, um, the visual outcomes tend to be the best in the endonasal series, the most, you know, the most recent endonasal series um, where, you know, there's some high-volume high papers that have done this, they, they tend to have better visual outcomes and, and a lower rate of vision deterioration. Thank you very so, much. Sure. And then to, to pick up more on, on that figure you mentioned, figure three, um, you sort of depict that you know, your, your visibility of um, structures goes all the way back to almost the basilar artery. And, and people even from endoscopic lateral orbitotomy approaches describe really nice posterior fossa accessibility or lateral cavernous wall. How much do you actually visualize, and, and in someone with your um, ability, how, how much is your uh, sort of work, workable zone? Like what is the amount of lesion that you can get access to? Well, I, you know, <clears throat> I think a lot of this is, is sort of your comfort level, and, and, and these are, um, you know, and, and we mentioned this in the paper about taking on um, easier cases at the beginning. This is this is a kind of a an acquired skill of working through a narrow corridor, using the endoscope frequently. And I think people that do a lot of endonasal, uh, you know, endoscopic work, this is an easier easier translation for them. I think people that are used to doing big traditional um, craniotomies you know really really coning down to a to a sort of a keyhole approach is a little can be daunting and and some people just don't like to do it and you know and that that's fine i think that you um to get to the brain stem for example we have a, a video that i show at a lot of meetings and where we we did a we did essentially a midbrain biopsy you know right up against the basilar and this is in a woman with what turned out to be a gbm and you know, it wasn't very hard because the woman was in her, I think, her late 70s, and she had a lot of brain atrophy, and it was easy to, you know, split the sylvian fissure and, and do all that. And, and I think, um, you know, sometimes these patient factors make a big difference. You know, if you have a young person with a really full brain, it may be, it may be more challenging, and you may need a, a different approach or a bigger approach. Um, we just had two cases recently. Um, we did one yesterday of a, a medial tentorial meningioma. It was interesting. It was almost two identical tumors, one in a woman, one in a man, that we did um, through the eyebrow, um, both of them. 
And the case that we did yesterday when the man had extremely thick bone and when we first opened, I thought, oh, my, this is this is not going to go well. We're going to have a hard time even reaching the, the tumor. Um, but with, you know, gentle, you know, drilling down the inner table, this is another really important thing. So the eyebrow incision and the craniotomy look small, really critical to drill down the floor of the frontal fossa and really sort of, you know, turn it almost into a inverted ice cream cone so that it cones out and that you, you have the maximal amount of view into the frontal fossa. Um, in this, <clears throat> and, and then, you know, opening the cisterns, getting the brain to relax, splitting the fissure. And this, this case, although it was tough, it was a tough tumor, um, we were able to remove about, um, I'd say, 80% of the tumor. I thought more with just the microscope, and then um, you can only go so far over the sphenoid and into the middle fossa. You can't, if you have a, a medial um, sphenoid wing meningioma, those we would typically approach through a mini-terional. But in the, this was really a medial tentorial meningioma. And when we finally switched over to the endoscope, there was at least 20, 25% of the tumors still there that we couldn't see with the microscope. And with a 30-degree endoscope, we were able to remove um, all of that. Um, but using, you know, longer angled instruments, ring curettes, angled suctions, um, and and that, um, you know, again, that that is that's not the sort of case you should take on um, early on. You got to have someone who can drive the scope well, and who is very comfortable, you know, working in that um, kind of close close quarters. And we don't use a scope holder for these cases. Our scope holder is ourselves or our fellow or, you know, we hold, we, we drive the scope. And you always want to be able to use um, two hands. So you've got to have someone skilled driving the scope for you. And we tried to, I think, point that out in the videos that are examples um, in, the, in the manuscript. So it's, I guess I would say that, you know, you, you, um, you definitely get limited, and as you go deeper, your your view does cone down. With as with any craniotomy, so you you really have to be be aware of that, and you, you don't want to get caught with um, a really restricted exposure. the The other thing I'll just say on the opening, it's very critical to get the opening as high and tall as you can, because if you have a craniotomy that's you know much under two centimeters, you are gonna uh, or you know. You, you will have trouble getting your, your bipolars and other instruments, you know, um, in and out and even open. And, and that can be, obviously, if you, if you can't use your bipolar, you're <laughs> you shouldn't be operating. Um, that can be a, a big problem. Um, so I, I would just put those caveats in there. The exposure is critical. You've got to really make the maximal use of the, in the incision and, and the bony opening. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. That was incredible. You were definitely pushing uh, the limits of what, what this uh, approach can give us. Uh, you had discussed uh, using the endoscope and, and looking at your series, it was used about 60% of cases. What uh, characteristics during the case or, or in the preoperative imaging lead you to decide to use the endoscope for a better examination rather than just a microscopic approach? 
Yeah, well, I would say that um, that's a that's a really good question, and we've we've increased our use. Um, I think we now have done close to 180 eyebrows since this paper has come out. We've you know we've added quite a few to the list, and I think we show some examples in the, in the some video examples. Um, you know, anytime you you want to see kind of far back under the under the frontal lobe, for example, like with a big um, a big meningioma, the endoscope can be can be very helpful. Um, when you want to look into the middle fossa, the, the endoscope um, is extremely helpful and really essential. You just will not be able to see well into the into a large part of the middle fossa without without some some endoscopy. Um, if you're trying to better understand a the degree of vascular encasement, you know um, that that can be um, extremely helpful. And so. Um, I, you know, I think the more um, the more you use it, the more comfortable you will you will get um, with maneuvering with it. And and you know, even the way you kind of position your hands. So what we typically do, the person standing. If let's say you're someone sitting at the microscope and the assistant is standing at the microscope. So when you swing the microscope out of the way, the person sitting is still the surgeon. The endoscope then is. Is sort of put into the if you're using a 30 degree endoscope, it's put at the bottom of the, or the really the top of the incision, but the top of the head, looking upward. And the hands, your hands would straddle the endoscope, so that's a more comfortable ergonomic way for you to um, use the endoscope and to be able to maneuver around it. So even those sorts of things are, are very very important. Um, but you know, for some of the big tumors. Um, I think like the example that uh, we showed there, you know, this very large meningioma in figure five, um, for the great majority of that procedure, we didn't use the endoscope at all because you just don't need it because you end up, as you start internally debulking the tumor, you create this very large cavity that you can see perfectly well and you just keep pulling the tumor in away from the, from the surrounding frontal lobes. Um, but, but it's always good to look uh, at the end. You'll be, you'll be surprised what you, what you see. Yeah, I was looking at that image uh, while I was reading it. It's, it's incredible, you guys, and for the audience, it's incredible you guys were able to get that five by four centimeter plane of meninge. Um, kind of really shows you that as long as it's it's within uh, the anterior cranial fossa, this this is a very viable approach for these procedure for these uh, pathologies. Uh, one of, one of the things um, that you did mention during in your article is that about 21% of the time, there is uh, either some some level of frontal sinus en entry, and about 68% of those times, you use the fat graft, abdominal fat graft, uh, for closure purposes. What kind of determined that, and uh, do you look at preoperative sinus sides for side determination or incisional decision? Right, so that's that's an important consideration, um, and and so we do not think a, a large frontal sinus is a contraindication. Um, it can sway you to come one side or the other. If you have on one side a very large frontal sinus, and the other side is smaller or extending less laterally, and the, it's a relatively midline lesion, we would choose the side with the smaller frontal sinus because it's just one less thing to deal with. Um, uh, and you can typically tell when you're going to get into it based on the preoperative MRI and CT scan. Um, 
surprise you know you you don't get into it uh, in a, in a lot of the cases as 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 you mentioned i think it was only um 20 about 20% of the uh 20% of the cases um and so um but you need to be prepared for it so we always prep patients for a for a fat graft um and if we do get into uh, now virtually all the time if we get into the frontal sinus um we Almost always, we'll put a we'll put a fat graft in. If the patient has really good dura, the dura closes very tightly. We'll just put you know collagen sponge and some tissue glue and, and put the bone flap back. But in most cases, um, the fat is the most reliable thing, and it just takes a few seconds. You know, it, it it takes you five minutes to harvest a fat graft from the from the lower quadrant of the abdomen, and it just works really well. Um, you know, I'm a big I'm a big fan of fat. I, I learned that from uh, from my mentor Ed Laws, and we um, we put it in many of our endonasal cases. In fact, the majority will get a fat graft. We don't use nasal septal flaps that often, only when we have big grade three leaks. And I think just like from from below in the nose, the fat just works really well to seal in when it's pressurized by a bone flap or you know a, a Miracel tampon or whatever you're using to compress it it fills in the gaps and really just eliminates your your risk of a leak. We we also do that for the retro for the retrosigmoid approach too. We use we have a very low threshold to to use a fat graft in those and we you know we just very rarely see a leak. And in this series we only had one leak in the entire series and and still to this date we haven't had another leak. Um and and in that particular case we did not use a fat graft and and we should have clearly. So it's it's a it's just a sort of an insurance policy, and and will will um, allow you to get your patient out of the hospital and not come back with fluid leaking out their nose, which we all hate. So does that yeah. uh, that answer the answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I think uh, it's a it's a very I mean, as you say, for an nasal surgeon. Uh, the fat graft is is second nature, and uh, for all these patients, I don't. As you mentioned, we don't need to um, take out the frontal sinus if there's a small enough entry, and as long as the closure is okay, yeah. Well, and I, I, let me go back to that. That's an important point. So when I was in training, which is a long time ago, um, the, the teaching, the classical teaching was, well, if you enter the frontal sinus, you need to, you know, exonerate the sinus and, you know, make it all flush with the the rest of the craniotomy, we don't ever do that. I think that's a terrible idea, and we, you know, you, you want to minimize the entry and um, keep it as small as possible. So there, there's no reason to make it bigger. <laughs> You're just asking for a high, higher chance of a leak. Dr. Kelly, you were talking about, um, very honestly, some of the complications you've had with, uh, with this technique, and, um, and, and I think it's very educational for people seeing the kinds of cases you're doing and, and learning about the approaches and really pushing the envelope. I wanted to ask, you've done these, these cases from 2007 to 2018. Have you mm -hmm. noticed um, an improvement in your uh, technique, sort of a reduction in you know, complication rate, uh, even with being able to take on bigger tumors? Um, and, and what do you think about sort of the, the surgical learning curve for this sort of approach mm -hmm. and, and the reduction of the hypesthesia and frontalis palsy that you, you report? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the the cosmetic recovery and that 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 I think is is definitely changing and gone down with this new this newer approach, this modified pericranial flap. I think that definitely has has changed that significantly. I think that helps. Um, you know, the more serious complications, and uh, I'm looking at our complications table, you know, that we have the strokes, the hematomas, other new neurologic deficits, vision worsening. I mean, we, you know, we had some, we had a few, you know, really bad, bad complications. And, and um, I would say on the, um, on the strokes, for example, um, the, um, you know, using the Doppler probe to, um, localized vessels is really helpful, as you as you you all know that when when you're doing a, a craniotomy and you're debulking a tumor, and the tumor is moving and coming down the you know if you have for instance the anterior cerebral arteries draped over a lesion, well the, the, that anatomy is shifted tremendously from your preoperative MRI that you're navigating off of, and so I would say the Doppler probe is essential for these kinds of tumor cases where you know you have a vessel adherent adherent to um, a rind of tumor and you're trying to, you know, not injure it. So that, that would be one thing. Um, you know, hematomas, you just got to be very patient with getting hemostasis. Um, vision worsening. So, I mean, I have a case that I remember, um, it was actually a physician that I did years ago, and we mentioned in this case with a tuberculum meningioma where we, um, he, he had bad vision in in one eye and normal vision in the other. We came down the, the normal side, and um, he woke up blind. And fortunately, in the fortunately in the bad eye, his vision got much better. But he never regained vision in the ipsilateral eye. And that was a case we didn't use the endoscope, and I was too rough on the nerve. You know, I was I was trying to get a complete removal on, under the and left a tiny bit of tumor. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, that is an avoidable complication. You know, you just simply can't remove every meningioma completely. And if you try too hard, like I did in that case, you wind up with a really unhappy patient and, and I still see him and he's actually very grateful now. And we, we have a nice relationship with the guy, but you know, that's a, that's a, a mistake or an error in, in judgment that, you know, now is it's almost 10 year case was probably 10 years ago. And, and those kinds of cases, I think, have to really stick with you. And you, you really have to think about, about quality of life in, in people. And, and to me, this, this approach is, um, is one that, that allows you to do that, provided you, you know, you're careful, um, you know, which goes without saying, but you have all the right technical adjuncts. And you, you try not to, you know, as we, as we say, the enemy of, of good is perfect. And I, I think that that's definitely a that's definitely a, a risk, you know, um, of trying to go go for broke on a on a tumor, particularly a benign tumor that can respond well to radiation, for example. Um, so the other other complications, you know, anosmia. We did mention, uh, and I think an important an important point on on meningiomas, um, olfactory groove meningiomas is that if you look at them very closely, you can often see one olfactory nerve may be less compressed than the other. Um, and if that's the case, we would come from the more compressed side because our, our feeling is that in those cases, you're going to have a really hard time preserving the ipsilateral optic nerve. You might be able to, but it can be very difficult. So if you 
if you take the if you leave the the contralateral side more alone, you you you're more likely to be able to preserve their olfaction. And um, so I think that's an important point about about olfactory nerve preservation. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Sure. I was going to say, uh, Dr. Kelly, these are all very important points, and I'm, I'm so happy that we're all learning from your experience. Um, as you said, you've changed your, the procedure slightly and kind of increased your uh, ability as time has gone along. Uh, can you, to kind of wrap up, can you give us what additional modifications do you have in the future that you want to attempt from either a functional, from, uh, from a reach standpoint, or from a cosmetic standpoint? Mm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I think I think the changes we've done in the pericranial flap is definitely um, very helpful for for recovery of of, of function. Um, I would say that um, you know we could still use some better instruments, some more you know angled instruments for getting to places such as the middle fossa such as under the, the, the ipsilateral optic nerve. Um, you know, we, we have pretty good instruments now, but I think some of, some of that could be, could be, um, could help. Um, Garni Barkadarian, my partner, and I want to give, I want to give credit, I'm sorry, to my, to my co-authors, uh, uh, Dr. Ansari, Sherry Ansari, he's a, he was our fellow at the time and is now practicing in Indiana, did a great job in this paper, and Garni is my, my, my partner in crime and does a lot of these cases with me. Um, you know, I think um, we've used the um, this flexible endoscope um, called the Chameleon, um, which allows you to go up to 70 or 80 degrees. It's a pretty pretty amazing endoscope with actually a really good good view, and I think that can also that can also um, be helpful. Um, I, I am beyond that endoscopy. Some other, you know, endoscopy or instrumentation nuances. I mean, I think those are the those are the main um, main things. We've certainly learned our lesson over over time in terms of you know how <laughs> how not to do it and cosmesis issues. Um, but it's 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 really a versatile approach, um, and I think with with um, Taking attention to all the cosmetic issues and really getting a maximal exposure and using the endoscope on every case just to get used to that view compared to the microscope, you you'll really become more more facile and and uh, productive with it. Well, thank you, Dr. Kelly. I mean, I could talk about this this all day, and I'm sure Dr. Cosby is the same way. But to Agreed. keep the podcast yeah. within a reasonable amount of time, uh, I would like to close off. But thank you so much for uh, allowing us to spotlight your um, article on the superorbital craniotomy. Thank you for Dr. Kazri and Dr. Kelly for joining us through this podcast. Um, and I hope all our audience enjoyed it and uh, took something away from it. Well, I do too. Thanks again for having me and allowing us to talk about our, our work. So appreciate you guys uh, doing this. Thanks, Dr. Kelly. Appreciate it.